Today in the Truth About Cars podcast, we're trying to answer the biggest question the auto industry is facing right now. Have we hit peak EV? I'll be joined by BJ Burtwell, the founder and CEO of Electrify Expo, to talk about why he thinks the future is electric. Plus, Alex Nizek from Consumer Reports joins us to discuss their 10 best cars of 2024. It's all up next, but first, a word from our sponsor. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with guaranteed fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only and exclusions apply. We're here in the Truth About Cars podcast with BJ Burtwell, the CEO of Electrify Expo. And BJ, before we get into the meat of our chat today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the automotive industry? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a car guy. <laughs> I mean, that's how it all started. Um, I loved tweaking and tuning on cars, uh, throwing money into cars that I would never get back, uh, making them go faster and look cooler. Um, so uh, all in all, I was a car guy. And uh, one of my first jobs uh, while I uh, dropped out of college for temporarily was um, I landed a job at Meguiar's. Um, so Meguiar's is a, a car care company. They make cleaners and polishes and waxes and have been doing that for Oh, I don't know. Over 100 years, if you're not mm -hmm. using Meguiar's, I don't know what you're using. Um, and I started answering phones. Um, customer service guy talking to people about their paint finishes and how to correct them and how to remove scratches and, uh, and uh, remove oxidation. And um, that was my first kind of foray into the aftermarket. And I already liked cars at that time, but then I really got bit by the bug because Meguiar's is just so active in special events. Um, and doing mm -hmm. things within the grassroots enthusiast community, which was uh, so much fun to watch. But it was mostly classic car guys and kind of Pebble Beach, Congo de Elegance people. And what I noticed when I was there a few years in, it's like, hey, there's an emergence happening within sport compact car culture and import car culture that, you know, there's not a leading car care brand here. And so um, I, I pitched the upper management. I mean, I was in my early 20s at the time. It was mid-90s, um, before Fast and Furious and all that. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I said, hey, we need to go after youth culture. And um, for the next, gosh, 15 years of my career, I spent most of my time working with brands on helping them reposition themselves to more of a, a youth culture or um, you know, multicultural um, culture. And so I uh, went from Meguiar's uh, to um, Chrysler. And I worked at Chrysler um, headquarters, although I was based out of Southern California um, for about seven or eight years and worked on the, uh, the LX chassis, which was the brand new Dodge Charger, Chrysler 300, Dodge Magnum at the time. Mm -hmm. And those were really those. hot. Yeah, those were super hot cars. And so my job was to help reposition those cars to be a little bit more hip and youthful. And so we did a lot within custom car culture um, and kind of, you know, when you, when you saw uh, Chrysler 300s and music videos and those those 300s were slammed on 22s that was me <laughs> that was me <laughs> it was a lot of fun um, and so I've just kind of carried that love of car um, all the way to where I am now Electrify which is kind of a polarizing thing because I hated EVs um, absolutely was against them really felt like hey they lacked a soul um, you know it's basically an appliance on wheels and that's how I looked at them and you know, I was on the freeway and, and behind an EV, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I could never get behind the wheel of an EV. And then I did. <laughs> and, then everything, and then everything changed for me. Um, uh, my first uh, EV experience, um, 
I think it was 2016 um, or 17, right around that time. And I had no idea that uh, an EV had that type of torque and acceleration. And it just absolutely created a light switch moment for me where it was like, hey, I know there's other people like me who may be skeptical skeptical about EVs um, and they just need a, a true experience in an EV in order for them to have their light switch moment. And that was the genesis of Electrify Expo. That actually brings me, it's a nice segue to my next question. So what is Electrify Expo and what prompted you to launch it? When did you start it and how has it grown? So that's actually a multi-part question, but uh, you can go ahead and answer that. Well, we're still a young company, but we're in our fourth season um, in 2024 and we are North America's largest EV festival. So we take over a million square feet um, in eight cities around the country and we produce an entirely outdoor EV festival where people can um, experience all things electric. So it's not just electric cars and electric trucks, although obviously that's a big component of it, but it's also e-bikes, scooters, skateboards, uh, watercraft, um, Mm -hmm. solar, battery, EV chargers. I mean, everything electric. When somebody walks into our festival, they might not know about what it means to go electric, but when they leave our festival, they know exactly what it means. And typically they've been bit by the bug because we provided them that experience that they were missing. And that's what's happening right now. Um, In fact, I just saw Chris Hardo um, over at Consumer Reports a couple of weeks ago post an article um, about how there's just really a lack of experiences out there for people to have their light switch moments in NDV. And that's exactly what Electrify Expo is solving is we're, we're creating these huge experiences all around the country you know, we'll do 250,000 demos this year just uh, with EVs. Um, and those are all people who are mostly having their EV driving experience for the very first time. And they're having their light switch moment. So um, it's catching on. Um, you know, we have so many auto manufacturers and bike and scooter and e-mobility manufacturers involved. And now non-endemics like Amazon and others. So it's just really been um, a festival that's had a really steep trajectory of growth. And it's really the antithesis to the traditional auto show. You already touched on this a little bit as you gave us your background, but what got you excited about EVs as an individual? Was it what you've already said or was there more to it than that? Uh, It was the driving experience for me. You know, everybody's different. Like, you know, we were as an industry, uh, we, we're going through waves of consumers. And so over the last four or five years for me personally, as I've been involved in the industry, um, and in some cases I'm still a noob, but uh, you know, we've, we've gone through this wave of EV enthusiasts and, and early adopters of EVs who didn't require you know, a ton of convincing to go electric. Um, and I feel like we've moved through them and now we're into this phase of, of a mainstream you know, general consumer who's coming to Electrify Expo to experience this, quote, all electric thing or this electric thing. And, and that's kind of how I was. Um, I, I had heard about it. Um, I was skeptical on it. Um, I didn't really like the idea of, um, you know, uh, me being told I had to go electric. Like that wasn't a thing that resonated with me and, and that cre- created even more skepticism in me. But when I had my experience in an EV, like that's when everything changed. When I put my we- my hands on the wheel and my foot on the accelerator and I mashed it, like for me, that's what changed it. So, you know, starting Electrify Expo was all about, okay, how do we create these experiences or similar experiences um, uh, for, 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 for consumers that were like me across the entire e-mobility spectrum? And, and, and that's what we're doing. So that'll bring us kind of into the more meat of our conversation here. So have we hit what people call peak EV, or more specifically, why do you think EVs are the future? 
uh, is it necessity such as government mandates or that sort of thing, or is there more to it? Uh, well, there's no necessities. Like I believe in free market capitalism and um, EVs need to duke it out in the sandbox with gas cars and people need to on their own, make their decision about, do I want to go gas or stay gas or do I want to go electric? Um, that's where that's, that's, that's kind of my opinion on, on how this works. Um, you know, electric may not be for everyone, but electric mm -hmm. is for mm -hmm. a lot of people and people may not know electric is <laughs> people may not know electric right. is for them until they actually experience it. And so that's the whole point is like, Hey, look, you may not, you may not think about um, the thrill of driving electric or you may not think about the benefits of going electric, but like, let's just get you behind the wheel and let's, let's, let's show you. Um, and mm -hmm. then at that point, at that point, like sometimes, oftentimes there is a script that's flipped and then people are like, Hey, I, I, I like this idea of going electric. Maybe I don't need to go full electric. Maybe I need to go plug in. Mm -hmm. um, and, plug -in hybrid. and mm -hmm. yeah, plug in hybrid. And certainly that's, that's a, that's a, an excellent option for a lot of people. Um, and we can, we can dive into why fully electric is not the best solution for a lot of people, but no, I don't think it's, you know, um, an, a necessity for these things to happen. I just think that, uh, EVs are a different way of, of moving around and, um, people need to have a free choice to, um, say, Hey, I want to go electric and uh, this experience changed me or, Hey, I want to stay gas. Um, but I think eventually as, uh, we, you know, brands like ours and others um, do a great job of really providing experiences. I think more and more people will will see the benefits of going electric, um, mm. and 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 many will obviously will be converting from gas and and never go back to gas again, like like I did. I'm, I'll never go back to gas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on that note, and you know, we've seen EV market share grow and grow over the years. But when do you think EVs will really hit the mainstream? And uh, and why? Is it going to be a matter of increased range, lower MSRPs, uh, easier charging access, that sort of thing? But when do you think EVs will really become part of the mainstream market? More so than they already are. Yeah, I mean, my answer to that is I don't know, but I have an opinion on it. Mm -hmm. um, Opinions and, are absolutely welcome. And I, think, um, I think if you're a two-car family, um, and you have the ability to charge at home, there is no reason why at least right now one of those cars should not be electric. Okay, so mm -hmm. that, that starts to answer this idea of uh, are EVs, when will EVs go mainstream? Um, and EV infrastructure needs to catch up and allow for people to who, who aren't able to charge at home to have reliable places to charge quickly so that people can um, move around um, and not be worried about uh, running out of battery or running out of range. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that this is kind of a question that's best answered by let's develop our let's develop more of the EV infrastructure. Let's see a lot of that come back on uh, come up online. Um, and then as that starts to happen, I think yes, we will we will start to um, you know reach that moment that that you know critical mass moment. Um, but, you know, we're still a few years away from that. And I think this is a this is really an exciting time because over the next few years, there's going to be still a very steep trajectory of growth within the EV world, um, mm -hmm. new people adopting EVs. And so um, it's a we're not there yet. But, you know, as as we inch each year, um, you know, towards 2030, uh, I could see us, you know, at that point being a lot closer to. You know, EVs finally hitting this air quotes, you know, mainstream adoption. 
uh, goal. Right, right. And mainstream is a little bit of a uh, probably a vague definition anyway. So uh, on that note too, how much do you think, you know, Tesla gets a lot of attention, negative, positive, very kind of, you know, a lot of spotlight on Tesla. How much is Tesla responsible for helping EVs grow? Uh, one thing we really can't argue about, no matter what you, no matter what you say about Tesla as a brand or Elon Musk as a person, obviously for a little while, Tesla got a lot of attention and, and how much has Tesla really helped grow the EV segment? Well, um, I mean, what would you say? What would what would be your answer to that question regarding you know how influential or impactful in Tesla's been to the EV role? What would you think? I would say there's definitely been an impact, just because um, for especially a while ago, before we've started learning some more negative things about the brand. I think about five to ten, fifteen years ago, Tesla sort of made EVs look cool uh, in a way that other automakers hadn't. So I would think there definitely is an impact. I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, though. Yeah, I, I don't even think. I would be um, fortunate to have this conversation with you today if it wasn't for Tesla, because, you know, Tesla moved, in my opinion, Tesla moved every auto auto manufacturer that much quicker to electric. Yeah, Um, I would agree with that. I think they pushed the the legacy automakers a little bit too. Mm -hmm. So there's no way I would have launched a a festival like this um, if there wasn't a demand for EVs and, and Tesla has created the awareness and the demand. So, you know, I think that they're pretty much solely responsible for pushing the entire industry this quickly into EVs. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that they're the, they're the reason. Yeah, I, I would agree to an extent. I, I definitely think legacy automakers would have got there, but it, they got there a little bit quicker uh, because of Tesla and competition. Uh, well, like, they, 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 they oh, definitely, ahead, yeah, they, they definitely got there quicker um, because of Tesla. Uh, I think, I think the question is like, you know, the manufacturers are motivated to compete and they're motivated mm-hmm. to win, to win market share. So if the market share really isn't there, what's going to motivate a manufacturer to really get involved? Um, you know, so, so uh, Tesla has, has created that, has, you know, created this whole market. Um, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. They haven't created the EV market, but they've created this motivation for other auto manufacturers to quicken or hasten their EV strategies. Uh, I, you know, I think that we'd probably be a tenth of where we are right now if Tesla was never was never created. Uh, I just don't think that there would be this desire to move away from you know legacy oil and gas into a a new technology when uh, it's it's too comfortable and too um, like uh, uh, it's too close to us. We, like we, it's too common. Um, so, you know what I mean by that. You know, I like, think so. Yeah, yeah. Like for the for the auto manufacturers, it's it's they they know they know the they know the combustion engine route, and um, there's there's you know really no no new technology. Um, it's it's predictable. I guess that's that's the that's the word I was looking for. It's very predictable. And, I, I think. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, please go ahead. I was just gonna say. I think you're trying to say that. In terms of manufacturing, uh, it was it's just easy to go with what you know. It costs less money and less time, and and and, and bringing in new technology in was probably a little bit of a challenge. And I think the automakers may have moved a little quicker because of Tesla's competition. Is, was that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's that's what I that's what I absolutely want to say. And I I think disruptors like Tesla are scary. You know, they're they're scary to the legacy brands. Um, mm-hmm. Especially when they start to catch, they catch on steam, um, and 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 the fan base that they've created uh, over the last 
decade, decade and a half. Um, so, you know, and I, I feel like in, in some ways, you know, from a disruption standpoint, like Electrify Expo is disrupting some things. Um, you know, people have been used to going to traditional auto shows um, and experiencing vehicles the same way for decades. Um, and now we've disrupted um, the space because we really felt like, you know, look, auto shows uh, are, are not, the ideal way to experience a new tech technology like EVs. Like if it's a gas car, no problem. I think mm-hmm. I think it totally totally makes sense. But to really feel the thrill of going electric and really get the most out of an EV driving experience, that's not going to happen in the basement of a convention center. Um, and so when you when you juxtapose that against you know an, an outdoor festival that has vibe and atmosphere and music and all of these um, very entrepreneurial, innovative manufacturers, along with legacy manufacturers, where you can really experience these products in a, in a fully new setting, but really experience them like you would in the real world. Um, we've, right. we've, we're our own, we're, you know, we're, we're disrupting as well. So um, I think that it's important to disrupt um, legacy industries with new ideas. It's just most, most of the time, disruptors don't make it. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, Tesla has, has been an example of a disruptor who, um, has, has figured it all out. Um, and, and kudos to them. I mean, look, Tesla is at every single one of our festivals and, um, they started to participate with us last year and, um, they had never, they they don't do events, Tim, like, you know, the, the line with Tesla, like they don't don't spend any money on advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like we all knew that. We all we know it from a PR standpoint. We know it from an advertising standpoint. The the company line is they they don't do that. And um, I believe we were one of, or if not like the only tour that they were participating in. Um, and it's when you watch Tesla activate at our events, they are a different breed. They're a different breed of person. Um, they are totally sold in to the mission of Tesla and and the importance of going electric and when you have that sort of enthusiasm and passion being uh broadcasted uh, on consumers as they walk into your display it's infectious and so you know although they don't have a ton of event experience their their passion um, and devotion to their brand and the industry is felt by people um not just in their main display but also on their demos so Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a really interesting thing to watch Excellent. Um, so I'm going to kind of flip the script a little bit and ask a couple of questions about EV adoption and sort of go in the opposite direction of what we were just talking about. So why do you think people are, I should rephrase this, why do you think the people who are hesitant to buy an EV, why do you think they are so hesitant? Uh, what is the reason for that? Uh, there could be a lot of valid reasons and invalid reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you people, res- sure, sure. You know, people respond differently to being told to do something. Um, some people are very accepting and um, they're like, okay, let, let's, let's do this. This seems like the best thing, the right thing to do. Uh, other people, as soon as you tell them to do something, they're like, well, why are you telling me to do this? Um, and I, I think that, um, uh, you know, there have been initiatives and messaging um, that's come down from uh, government administrations who actually are now flip-flopping on a lot of things that we can mm-hmm. surely get into but um you know they've been telling you know they've been telling states and they've been working with states and states have been telling people 
um, hey, we're going to stop doing this in 2025. We're going to stop doing this in 2030. Um, and I think with some people that just does not resonate. Like we, we're, we're Americans. Like we believe in free choice and mm-hmm. people should be given a choice to, to, uh, to go electric or to stay gas. I want, I want people to experience electric. Uh, don't get me wrong, but people should have a choice. So I, I suppose, you know, that's, that's one reason is just general skepticism. Um, there are other reasons that are invalid, but there are other reasons that are valid. I mean, I think that this is a new technology. Um, EV infrastructure is, is not where we need it to be in order to have mainstream adoption. And in some places in this country um, and in some living situations, it probably doesn't make sense for that person to go electric. Um, or it might make sense for them to go plug in. So I, I think that there are, there are very, you know, there are valid reasons for people sometimes right now at this point in time to maybe go plug in or not go electric. Um, and then there's, you know, some other things that are happening that are kind of beyond our control, um, that are invalid and we just need to get to the truth. Excellent. Excellent. I would say, I would add to that, that Americans really don't like being told to do even when it's good for them. We, we kind of discovered that during the COVID pandemic, but that's a whole different topic. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so th- this sort of plays into what you just said in answering the previous question. But what are the biggest myths about EVs that, and some mm-hmm. of the, some of the adoption maybe being held back because people believe these myths? So can you run us through some of the biggest myths and how you counter those? Yeah, that's a big one. Um, people still look at EVs, unfortunately, the same way they may have looked at them uh, three, four, or five years ago, mm-hmm. um, and that's 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 difficult and challenging because the technology is changing so quickly year over year. Um, And so re-educating is a hard thing to do. Like it's, it's a very, it's a simple thing to to plant an idea in someone's mind through an experience or through a message, but to change someone's perception is entirely different and usually a lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, you know, as this technology changes year over year, um, it is becoming, you know, more difficult because, uh, these vehicles do have more range. They do charge faster. There are more EV charging stations. There is less of a need for ranging. There is less of a of a reason for range anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. These cars these cars are cheaper. You know what I mean. But but if you look at the opposite of everything I just said, many many people believe in the opposite because that's what they've been told three four years ago, and they're taking that with them today. So I think that there are a lot of myths out there that need to be kind of de- uh, need to be busted. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and then, as I mentioned earlier, like there's also just really bad experiences. Um, you know, there's bad experiences that happen at auto shows, uh, where people are hyped up because, uh, they have a friend who owns an EV and they say, Hey, you got to go try this out and check this out. And then they go to an auto show and they hop behind the wheel of something and it's in the basement of convention center and they're underwhelmed. And then they leave that experience saying, "Mm, I, I tried this whole electric thing and I'm just, I'm not all that impressed. Um, and then when will they ever try an EV again? You know what I mean? So it's, um, I think that there's a lot of things that factor into this, but um, it's, it's inevitable that over the next couple of years, as the technology gets stronger and better, um, which it's already done, as EV infrastructure and the investment going into the industry uh, continues to roll out in a bigger way, uh, it's inevitable that um, more and more people are going to cross over because the, the driving experience in an EV is just better. It's just mm-hmm. better. And, and and for me, like as a car guy, that's hard for me to say because I love the rumble of a V8 and I love the sing of an inline four turbo. Like I love it. 
But the actual driving experience, the tranquility, but also the acceleration is um, something that you just can't uh, replicate in a gas vehicle. And I just feel like the more opportunities we get people to have that experience, the faster EV adop- mass EV adoption will come. Excellent. We have time for two more questions, or actually three more questions, and we're going to run through those real quick here. So you've already touched on this a little bit uh, with the previous conversations over the last couple of minutes, but what is the one thing that you think is holding back most people from owning an EV, whether it's price, particularly MSRP, range or range anxiety or charging availability, or is it just a matter of there's just not enough EVs in the market that people are getting what they need? You know, They might be willing to go EV in terms of they might be willing to pay for it and range won't bother them, but they don't, they're not getting the product that fits them uh, the way they need for their daily lives. So what do you, what do you think is the one thing that's kind of holding the, holding the market, the EV segment back or holding people back from owning an EV, I should say. I don't know, maybe one or two things, but I think you nailed one of them. I think product mix is part of it. Um, You know, look, the the best selling vehicle in America is a pickup truck. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the more pickup trucks that we have that are electric, the more, the, the the quicker we're going to get to to mass adoption and and unbelievably most people don't use um, a pickup truck the way that we stereotypically think about it um, meaning from a utility standpoint certainly there are many that do um, but like if we're talking a you know uh, an F one fifty or a, a Silverado um, or a or a Ram truck. Um, Obviously, the F-150 Lightning is, is out and about. Um, but, you know, we're still waiting on Silverado, really, to roll mm-hmm. out. And we're waiting on the Ram Electric truck. Um, we have Cyber that just came out. We have the uh, Rivian truck and trucks that are that are coming out. So I think that's going to help. Um, so I think product mix is one of them. I mean, Americans love trucks. Americans also love three-row SUVs. And there aren't a ton of three-row SUVs out there. Um, there are some, but there are not a lot. So I think, you know, the more that our product mix um, broadens and widens, I think that's going to that's gonna help quite a bit. Uh, and to the previous question, I think price plays a part as well. And do you think we'll see a $25,000 MSRP EV anytime soon? I don't know. What's the average price of a gas car these days? I'm sorry, uh, way more than twenty five thousand. I, I want to say the ATP it changes all the time, and I haven't looked in, in recent days, but probably the mid to high forties right now. But that's average transaction price. So obviously, luxury yeah. vehicles and, and anything gets marked up is going to skew the number a little bit. But right now, yeah, it's in the forties for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, look, five years ago there really wasn't price parity in the market. Uh, EVs were, um, in some cases, significantly more expensive on the average than a gas vehicle. But today, you know, there's quite a, there's quite a few really good offerings um, in that 30K range um, and 40K range. And then you add on the government rebates. So mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't know if, if, if price is, is what's holding people back. I think in some cases, yes, absolutely. And would it, would a $25,000 offering um, do well? Yes. Um, I think the, you know, what is, probably going to disrupt our industry next is some of the Chinese and Korean manufacturers entering the U S market because they're, well, they may be able to enter the U S market at a, at a lower price point than what is offered right now. So 
that's going to shake things up and and certainly make things affordable. Now, whether Americans will gravitate to those vehicles and and not care so much about um, brand awareness because a lot of these brands are not known by general Americans, um, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I don't think I, I don't think it's price, although it, it plays a factor. I just don't think it's the main factor. But I, I could be wrong. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, but just to follow up on that, do you think we will see anything in that price range anytime soon, or is that still a little bit a little bit ways off? Yeah, I think we will. I mean, I don't I don't know if if, if Tesla is going to be the first to do it, but I think we're going to see it. And like I said, it may come over from overseas, and it's probably mm-hmm. going to come, you know, in the next you know twelve to twenty four months. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for your time. It's been a great conversation uh, today. So finally, how can people find out more about Electrify Expo? You can find out more about Electrify Expo by um, hitting us up on any of our socials. Um, we have great content and videos, all, t- all types of first-time experiences uh, that, we, that we publish from people at our festivals. Um, so all the major social media platforms as well as electrifyexpo.com. Just, just for the, uh, the benefit of our listeners, you, you want to go ahead and kind of give out your social handles there? Sure. Uh, well, Instagram and Facebook, uh, you can find us at Electrify Expo. Uh, same with Twitter. Um, and then, uh, obviously, electrifyexpo.com. You can come look at our eight festivals this year. We hit um, Orlando and then Phoenix, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, Austin, and New York. So we're uh, making our way around the country and, and continue to add more festivals. So if you're in that region or even if you, you, know, you, you want to check us out, uh, it's, really, it's really worth the time to come and even fly in and have a, a, spend a great day with your family at Electrify Expo. Awesome. Thanks for your time. Uh, we, we are speaking with BJ Burtwell, the CEO of Electrify Expo, and we'll be right back on the Truth About Cars podcast. eBay Motors is here for the ride. So we're speaking of rides. Last week, we talked about watching racing from the stands. This week, we're talking about, or I'll be talking about myself anyway, about my first chance to drive on a racetrack at speed, which was about 15 or 16 years ago at Road America in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, about an hour north of Milwaukee. That was my first chance at an industry event to drive at speed on a racetrack. I've done that several times. I've done Road America almost every year since, except for the COVID year. Unfortunately, I've even had an incident where I've gone off at Road America, which you could read about on The Truth About Cars. I've also had the chance to drive Thunderhill in California uh, near Sacramento, Willow Springs in Southern California, Sonoma Point, which is the old Sears Point Raceway. I don't know what it's being called these days. Changed names several times. I've driven Sonoma Point uh, a few years ago, and I actually will be driving it again in about a month or so. Um, I actually take that back just a couple of weeks. So I've driven Sonoma Point a couple or Sears Point Sonoma Raceway a couple of times. Driven a few other private tracks, uh, Autobahn and the Chicago suburbs, a few others here and there, uh, Spring Mountain out in Nevada. And I've also, of course, like most automotive journalists, I've had the chance to drive gingerman in southwest michigan which is a great fun track so so for those of you listening get on track if you can and if you need help that's why ebay motors comes in or excuse me where ebay motors comes in with over 122 million parts your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with brake kits led headlights roof racks bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it with ebay motors guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber and not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
Here at the Truth About Cars podcast, we like to speak about the products that we use on our vehicles at home in terms of keeping them running and keeping them running well, keeping them clean, and all the other sort of good stuff that you do to maintain your car at home. So we're speaking with Matthew Guy today. Matthew Guy is our one of our kind of stuff we we call him our stuff we use expert because he actually uses a lot of the products that we we review on the site. So, so Matthew, we're talking about socket wrench sets today. Can you uh, walk us through the best, the worst, and uh, and all that sort of stuff? Let's start with the, let's start with your preferred. Um, let me try that again in English, please. Let's start with your preferred socket set. Absolutely. Um, because, I mean, we thought this would be a great idea for our listeners to follow up on. Uh, we've been talking about floor jacks. We've been talking about other dredge um, useful tools. So, you know, a socket set is a natural evolution of that. But it is a bit more of an investment for sure. So mm-hmm. it's good to have a bit of knowledge in your back pocket before you go out and spend the money on it. Um, if you're new to uh, wrenching or if you're just getting back into it, um, remember that just try to avoid sets. I don't like sets which pad their so-called piece count uh, with tiny or nearly useless tools. Almost every socket set that you see for sale will say, hey, this is 135 pieces or this is 206 pieces. And sometimes they'll pad that count with like 48 screwdriver bits that you'll never use. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that is something that you can watch out for. You might think that you're getting a lot more than you actually are if you're just going by the piece count. So make sure to look and see what's actually in the case before you buy it. And here's what I feel you should be looking for. I've got a 135-piece Craftsman mechanic set uh, with metric and standard in them. Um, and that's been in my toolbox for the better part of a decade. And... Um, its case was far more battered <laughs> than ever. Um, mm-hmm. I actually mm-hmm. took I actually took the plastic case. It's just a blow mold of plastic case, and I actually took it apart because I leave it in my tool chest at home. I don't take this one with me anywhere where I go, so I just leave that in the um, uh, in my in my tool chest. So I've actually taken the blow molded um, case apart so that I can still keep all of my sockets James May style, put everything back where it belongs. Right. And right, right. You, you, yeah, and you should always look for, I feel, um, six-sided um, sockets. Uh, what I mean by that is the sockets themselves that you're using to undo uh, bolts will have six sides on them. Most bolts have six sides, so it is a much better option to have a six-sided socket. Why, you ask? Because there are also 12-sided sockets out Me, there, me which too. Are, yeah, right? Because they're, they're, they're good in a pinch, but they'll often round out the head of the bolt. Hey, Tim, like, mm-hmm. I mean, you've, um, you've been in the parts industry for a long time back in the day, and you experienced this too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've definitely was, um... seen it happen, for sure. <laughs> and you just ended up with rounded out bolts, and then you're using Oh, yeah, it's frustrating. Totally frustrating, totally frustrating. So definitely look for something that doesn't pad its piece count with... Um, small screwdriver bits or hex keys and stuff like that. A few of those are fine, but if there's a hundred of them in there, it's not really going to add to your day very much. Right, um, right. What would you call it? The point of diminishing returns, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. look for something with six-pointed sockets. Um, I also like to have enough deep well sockets. Um, if you look at um, particular sockets uh, that come with these sets, some of them will only be 
a couple of inches high and then some others will be double that amount. And I call those deep well sockets. I'm sure other people have different names for them. Uh, but it just allows you to either get down into something a little bit better where you need the extra reach. Or maybe it's a longer bolt where the head is in a weird spot. And those deep well sockets are really, really helpful. Excellent. Are there any sets or types you would uh, recommend buyers and, and stay-at-home at home mechanics, shade tree mechanics? That's what I was looking for, shade tree. Um, would you, anything you'd recommend they would avoid? Uh, definitely avoid anything with 12 points in them. Um, Outside of 12 to, points, which we already discussed, of course. Yeah, and then try to avoid ones that you might find, say, and I know this sounds this sounds simplistic, but it's true. Um, these types of sets often show up in bargain stores, you know what I mean? Or mm -hmm. uh, major uh, retailers that don't necessarily uh, specialize in car repair. So if they're in a major retailer that doesn't specialize in car repair, or if it's in a, in a, in a discount store, in a discount um, a supermarket uh, or a department store is what the term I'm looking for, try not to mm -hmm. buy them there because they tend to be not great quality. They'll either round your bolts off or, and this is something that I've seen most in those cheap sets, is the ratchet itself doesn't have enough teeth in the head of the ratchet. And what I mean by that. Uh, that refers to the number of cogs on the gears that's inside that tool. It makes that mm -hmm. cool sound, right? The brrrr, brrrr, brrrr that you hear when you're using right. a ratchet and socket set. So the cheaper ones don't have as many teeth on the cog. Um, look for something, I think, with at least 72 teeth. And that okay. seems to be a pretty good number so that you can just have a little small click and you don't really need to move the wrench too far if you're in a really tight spot in order to get that bolt broken. Is there any advice beyond what you've already spoken about? Obviously, we 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 just discern that we don't want 12, uh, 12 sided sockets. Um, we already kind of talked about the brands you like and the brands you avoid. What other advice would you give someone who is for the first time really starting to work on their own cars at home and and starting to use socket sets or or using socket sets for other stuff around the house? It's not just automotive, I suppose. That's true, because you can use socket sets for a lot of stuff, whether it's, um, you know, furniture assembly. Um, I mean, if you're living in a condo, there's all kinds of things mm -hmm. that you can use mm -hmm. a socket set for. Um, try, to get, try to get a set that has both um, standard and metric sizes uh, in it, um, because half inch uh, versus 10 millimeter, you know, stuff will be close, but it won't be spot on. And you'll end mm -hmm. up uh, rounding off your bolts and just making the... A five-minute job turned into a five-hour job. So oh, yeah. always look. Yeah. yeah, right? You've been there too, Tim. So look yep. for something that's got both of those. Um, there are cheaper sets out there that only have one or the other. But I'm almost confident that you'll end up going and buying both anyways. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, even even though I don't really wrench on vehicles right now because I don't have the space to do it, uh, I do have some hand socket sets here at my house. And I don't recall off the top of my head, I'm not going to interrupt the podcast to go out and grab them out of my utility closet. But here in my little condo, I do have a couple socket sets that I use for around the house type stuff. And I believe they, are, they I believe they do have both standard and metric. Um, I have, but I have run into at times, you know, using the wrong size or maybe socket gets lost or you have the wrong, the wrong thing. So that this advice is really, really helpful to to kind of get people to get the right stuff because I think it sounds like common sense, but I think it really is true that the having the best tool available for the job will save you a lot of hassle and, and, and work in the long run. 
Very much so. Having the right tool just makes life a heck of a lot easier. And you can make your own joke out of that if you want. Um, but well, there's no one joke other there. Thing. I think it's pretty pretty obvious. <laughs> but one other thing, I'll just I'll just sign off by saying, the jokes are true. You are probably going to lose your ten millimeter socket because <laughs> that's the most popular the one, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the memes are true. Go out and buy a couple of extra ten mils, and you're golden. Well, let me ask you this: Does it get lost because it's so popular and you're using it so much, and you just don't put it away where it's supposed to, or does it get lost because as luck would have it, whenever you need it, you just can't find it. Is it, is it a Murphy's Law thing or is it a disorganization kind of thing? <laughs> For me, it's Murphy's Law because I'll end up being I'll end up using the 10 mil more than anything else. So just by um, dint of statistics, it's going to get lost more frequently because I use it twice as much as anything else, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll drop it down in an engine bay and then it's on you know, an engine mount down there and I, I can't get at it for love nor money. So it's rattling around for the next hundred years. Or I'm trying to break a bolt loose and then everything goes flying when the bolt finally does come loose. And then I never see the socket again because of that uh, instance. Or like you said, man, sometimes it's just like, hey, I got a phone call or a text or, you know, someone came home and I want to talk to them. And I just put my tool down uh, and the 10 millimeter is on it. And then it's it's gone when I come back. Oh yeah, see ya, see ya, ten millimeter. Absolutely. Well, Matthew, this has been really helpful. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it as always, and we will see you on the next time on the Truth About Cars podcast, talking about the stuff that we use. Thank you again, Matthew. Thanks for having me on the show. We're here in the Truth About Cars podcast with Alex Nizek from Consumer Reports. He is the manager of automotive testing and insights. Thank you for joining us today, Alex. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. So he's on to discuss the top 10 cars that Consumer Reports came up with for 2024. Alex, before we get into that, can we sure. talk a little bit about, uh, tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I guess at first, you know, I'm a car enthusiast and I've just been passionate about cars for my entire life. So I, at this point, I'm getting to kind of live out my dream testing cars and um, being a part of, of what Consumer Reports does. So, you know, from that perspective, it's, it's pretty amazing. But, um, you know, before that, I do have a, a background in mechanical engineering. And then I, I did get a uh, go on to study automotive engineering specifically, which, um, you know, set me up, I guess, pretty well. Um, and I did work at Ford for a little bit uh, in the engineering department, um, you know, primarily working on uh, touchscreen interfaces and ergonomics and things like this. Not necessarily, I suppose, where I expected to end up um, at Ford, but um, it, it really turned out to be a blessing in disguise in some ways after coming to Consumer Reports, you know, just as I'm sure you're aware, just uh, the way cars are, are moving with the technology on the inside being so important and differentiating them with with controls and usability and the user experience and things like that. So it really did provide a good perspective on that. Um, but one thing I, I guess I'll, uh, since I get to talk about me for a second, um, that I really do uh, look back fondly on is in my grad school experience, um, we did this program called deep orange at Clemson University, which is basically like simulating a vehicle development, um, you know, scenario just at a smaller scale and with students instead of uh, in a professional environment. But uh, we built an entire concept car. We actually worked with mini 
and BMW and um, built an entire plug-in hybrid uh, vehicle from the ground up, which was absolutely amazing. And just getting to experience, you know, all the engineering that goes inside of a, a vehicle and, you know, work at, uh, you know, cutting edge technology and that type of thing. So a lot of cool stuff. Um, and then certainly love what I'm doing now. Excellent. Good to hear. Um, so can you tell us kind of, we, we're here to talk about your top 10 cars. Can you kind of sure. walk us through the process and tell us how that works? And because everyone, every automotive outlet does it a little bit differently. Just as an mm. example, those of us at TTAC, we've done best and worst every year at the end of the year. And we do generally, we don't have a formal testing process. We just basically pull all the people who actually have access to test cars and ask them to say, hey, what was the best thing you drove or what the best th- three cars you drove or whatever. Right. And we change right. it up a little bit from year to year. So how does it work at Consumer Reports? Yeah, you know, we we try to be really consistent and and regimented with what we're doing and how we're testing. Um, and so we test a lot of cars each year. I mean, we, you know, uh, I don't know the exact number, but at least 30 each year, but sometimes more, sometimes less. We actually just tested a lot more because we have been kind of diving deep into plug-in hybrids, as we'll talk about. We have about 50, a little bit more than 50 different, you know, subjective and objective testing that we do here at our test track in Connecticut. So that's kind of the foundation, right? All these cars go through um, the same tests. Some of that is out on the test track, you know, with controlled surfaces for braking and acceleration and um, emergency handling and things like that. Uh, And then there's, of course, the subjective side of it in terms of, um, you know, ride and handling and usability of controls and, and things like that. So, you know, step one is really being the top of the category for performance and all of the things that we're looking for. Uh, and then after that, you know, the the next two things are owner satisfaction. So we survey our members every year and, and find out who, um, you know, essentially who would buy their vehicle again and who's happy with it. And reliability is another huge component of of what we do. So again, that comes from our member survey data. And then we're looking at historical data to uh, essentially come up with, um, you know, projected reliability rating for these new cars. So that's a huge component of it. We know reliability is super important um, to consumers and and people shopping for a new car. And then, you know, piece number four, if you will, is safety. So all these cars have to have um, standard forward collision warning and automatic emergency braking, you know, at a minimum. Of course, many of them have many things beyond that, but that's kind of the, the basis, to, uh, you know, minimum qualification to get yourself on the list. So, so there's that. So all of that kind of comes together. Um, but then to your point, you know, it's, it's also a lot of us talking about these cars, experiencing these cars, living with them day to day. So, you know, and sharing opinions and trying to represent the consumer, of course, but there is that, that subjective component too, that, you know, basically all of these cars are something that, if I had to recommend a car to a family member or a friend, you know, I'd have no problem doing that. Excellent. Excellent. So we talked, you touched briefly upon electrification. So reading mm-hmm. over the list here, mm-hmm. by my count, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are seven, if we count the Prius and Prius Prime as the same model, mm-hmm. there are seven electrified models. Now, for yeah. the sake of our listeners' clarity, most of our listeners understand what that means. But for those who don't, mm-hmm. electrified does not mean electric vehicle necessarily. It can be a right. hybrid or a plug-in hybrid as well. Right. But I'm counting the, the Camry Hybrid, Toyota Prius, Toyota Prius Prime, Ford Maverick Hybrid, Toyota Highlander Hybrid, Toyota RAV4 Prime, Tesla Model Y, and BMW X5 plug-in. So yeah. can you tell us why seven of your 10 are electrified? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it really speaks to where the market is right now. I mean, we're 
you know, our lists and, and frankly, what we're testing is really trying to respond to the market, what consumers are looking for, what they're interested in, um, and also what we're trying to help people understand. And plug-in hybrids are, are certainly something that is a little bit of a mystical technology, if you will, um, that's out there. But, you know, just generally speaking with electrification, whether we're talking an EV or, or even just going down to a regular hybrid, these tend to be a lot quieter, a lot quicker in their acceleration, um, and then certainly, you know, most often anyway, more efficient than their gas-only counterparts. So especially when you're talking about a regular hybrid vehicle, there's very few trade-offs most of the time. I mean, we've gotten to the point where the price premium to get into a hybrid, especially the ones on our list, is sometimes zero. Uh, other times, it's it's quite small. You know, we're talking a $1,500 price premium over the regular version, Um so, so there's really, you're not giving up a whole lot. You know, we can get into the details on the driving experience of some of these cars for sure. And, you know, a lot of the hybrids have a, an eCVT in them where, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the gas version has a eight speed or something like that. So there is a driving, you know, experience implication of going with a hybrid in most cases. But uh, for most people who are looking for that efficiency and reliability, we see that hybrids are very reliable. Um, they can be an awesome choice. And you know, I, I think reliability might be a different uh, discussion, broadly speaking, with plugins and, and pure devs. But, um, you know, those comments, I guess, about uh, acceleration and power and quietness and performance do kind of hold true um, for the other forms of electrification as well. Excellent. Uh, so one thing I also noticed looking at the list is only three of this year's top picks are back from last year. That's the Super yeah. Forester, the Camry Hybrid, and yeah. the Maverick slash Maverick Hybrid. Right. So uh, for those who have not seen the Consumer Reports article, the new entrants are the new ones on the list are Model Y, Subaru mm-hmm. Crosstrek, Mazda 3, Highlander Hybrid, RAV4, Prime, BMW X5, and X5 Plug-in, and the, Pri- the two Prius, the Prius family. Right, uh, right. So can you tell me why it changed over so much this year? Only three out of uh, 10 have carried on to another year? Yeah, I mean, so it's, you know, just to, I guess, to be clear, those three are ones that were repeat from last year, right? Those were on the mm-hmm. list. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I meant. Yeah, Sorry, yeah right. consecutive. I misspoke. No, 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 that's okay. And it's just, you know, it, I, it's a little confusing is all I'm trying to say on our end, really, <laughs> um, is some of those vehicles have been on the list before. For instance, the um, the Prius, right? And the Prius Prime. They've been on the re- list before, uh, except for then they went through a redesign and, you know, by the time we put out the list last year, we hadn't had a chance yet to test the Prius and the Prius Prime. So um, point being is vehicles come and go depending on whether they've been redesigned or not. And mm-hmm. sometimes we just don't have, we, we don't have the data yet to say whether a vehicle is going to be reliable or not, um, or certainly if we haven't tested it, right? So we don't want to go and say something's on the list if, we, if, you know, historically it's been, but we haven't had a chance to check the new one yet. So um, that's why you kind of see some of the vehicles come and go. That makes um, total and complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, um, you know, kind of, I guess, starting at the top of the list with the model Y, I'm thinking about the electrification and going down from full Bev down to, you know, gas only, but, um, we did have the Tesla model three on the list last year and, you know, great car, um, and reliability was, was strong enough to make it onto the list for our electric vehicle, you know, category. But now we see with the model Y that the 
uh, reliability has increased enough from our survey data that says, um, okay, now it's it's eligible to be on the list. And ultimately, uh, from a vehicle standpoint, it's basically the Model 3, but more practical, right? You get more space, bigger cargo area, um, that type of thing. So score is a little better for us in that regard. So now that the reliability is similar between the two, we move the Model Y, or the 3, excuse me, off, and, and now the Model Y is there in its place. The other thing that stuck out to me looking at the list is, as you said in in, in your press release, the the six of the ten cars are mm-hmm. have a base price under thirty k, yeah, whereas yeah. an average new transaction price or the ATP is closing in on fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. So, does that factor in? Is there any you know is there any reason why there's so many cars that are under thirty k, or is it just a coincidence? Um. Yeah. Good question. I mean. We do try to, um, I mean, yeah, certainly there are a lot of vehicles that perform really, really well that have, you know, cost a lot more. Um, but as we often see, you know, these vehicles that cost a lot more, they're redesigned more often, per se, um, and have a lot more technology in them. Those are sometimes the things that go wrong and that, you know, kind of impact the reliability negatively. So it might have, you know, uh, I'm just thinking about the lucid air for example just pulling a random example out of my head um amazing car right incredible technology performance is is kind of next level but if we don't have the <clears throat> excuse me the satisfaction and the reliability to data there to support it then um you know it can't really make the list so uh i think a lot of the the cars that do come in under that thirty thousand dollar mark um are cars that just you know, despite their price, have strong reliability, satisfaction is really high. And, you know, we just know that people shopping for a new car, yes, there are the ones that are inflating that uh, that average price up to that near $50,000 mark you mentioned, but there's still a lot of people that, that don't want to spend that much. I mean, I don't know about mm-hmm. you, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so getting something and, and that under $30,000. I think we'd all love to spend $100,000 on a sports car. <laughs> well, well, yeah, sure. I wish I was in the position to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know, that that under $30,000 mark, it, it's and it's the, the starting base price, right? We know people add options and whatnot, but really just shows people that you don't have to um, – spend an arm and a leg to get a car that is great. Um, and in the case, you know, we have the Mazda three on the list. Um, I'm sure a vehicle you've, you've driven before and Mazda. Not recently, but yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last one I drove was, um, let's see, uh, the turbo hatchback model a couple of years ago, um, which was pretty sweet. Certainly not the cheapest version of the, <laughs> the Mazda three that you can get, but you know, point mm-hmm. being, it's just, Mazda, that three shows that you don't have to spend a bunch to get a car that's not boring, you know? It's right, right. Good interior, looks nice. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, you can option all these cars up beyond that $25,000 price. But Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to say we would be remiss if we didn't mention that base price literally means base price. Yeah. You can right. you can get a Honda Civic over $30,000 if it's fully owned. Oh, no problem. I, yeah. I believe a sport touring manual base is like thirty one for the... I think a sport manual is like 26, but if you want the nicer one, it's like 31. Right. I was, yeah, I was it, pricing them the other day. That's what I do sometimes during my lunch yeah. hour. But <laughs> yeah. Um, and the Mazda 3 is a great example of that. That's a car that starts at a nice base price, but loaded up, it could get a little bit pricey. Right. Not, well, not, even not, the, not the Navarro. Have, 30. 
Right. Oh, yeah, the Maverick. Definitely the Maverick. I mean, you want to start loading options on for sure. Yeah, and most people do, right? I mean, when that came out, I mean, even the base price of it when it came out of the whole deal was that it was going to be, um, you know, I forget what the... I want to say it was nineteen nine ninety five. Yes, it was five exactly. bucks under twenty thousand. Just so you can say that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then we're three years into its lifespan, and it starts at like you know twenty three or something like that. And it's not the hybrid standard anymore, right? Um, so yeah, so these things change; they increase over time. But um, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I drove the Mazda three myself. I think it was like mm-hmm. during the height of the pandemic was the last time okay. I drove one because I remember yeah, yeah. like we still weren't going a lot of places when I last mm-hmm. I had one. So it, I'd like to drive that car again. Yeah. Uh, uh, moving on to the list, we talked about why there's so few repeats. Let's. We also talked about why there's so many cars under thirty thousand. Yeah. Are there any key fall offs from last year? Some, uh, you mentioned the Prius, and now you said that you know the Prius wasn't available in time for testing. But outside of that, outside of vehicles that weren't the right timing because uh, they were being redesigned or relaunched yeah. or whatever, were there right. anything that didn't really change, but it fell off just because either something else bumped it off or or whatever reason? Yeah, good question. Um... Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um, let's see. I think maybe the uh, the Corolla is a surprising one, mm-hmm. um, getting displaced um, by uh, I believe the Crosstrek is what took its place. Um, and you know, it really just comes down to the performance of the car, right? Um, you know, the the Corolla being a small sedan, um, not as spacious as something like a Crosstrek, uh, even though that's pretty small too, but um comfort wise right the cross trek just uh it um rides really really well for its i don't know if you've driven the new one but even the old one right that and that's subaru not really changing their uh too much with their redesigns right so i think um you know seeing the corolla off the list is maybe a little bit surprising um but yeah and then i think um the the Tesla Model Y is is one that replaces the three. And actually, you know what? A, a really interesting one is that we had the Nissan Leaf on the list last year. And the reason it's not there this year isn't actually at all because it's not a good car or a good EV. Yes, there are newer EVs um, coming out that are more technologically advanced and, and what have mm-hmm. you. But um, it actually, a lot of it comes down to the fact that it has the Chatamo plug for fast charging, right? Yep. Not only was that already kind of on its way out to be replaced by CCS, the you know the combined charging that most EVs today have, but now with everything going on with the Tesla connector and the Nax connector, as you might hear it be called, uh, it's just the future of being able to charge the Nissan Leaf out in at public chargers is pretty unknown. So we would be a little, it would be a little awkward to recommend that car, you know, even though it's it's still great otherwise. Yeah, and just just uh, you mentioned the Crosstrek. I've driven the Sport and the Premium last fall. I have a Wilderness scheduled for testing in a few weeks, so I've not driven the Wilderness. Okay. As far as the Leaf goes, I did have one uh, over Thanksgiving weekend. I drove my parents' house in it. They live about an hour, hour, 15 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And um, charging it was a little bit of an issue. It was really slow to charge their house. They don't have a yeah. EV charger or anything. And then right, right. I did find a Chatty Mo, but it was a good 15, 20 minutes uh, mm-hmm. down the way but at least it worked it took a few a few different attempts to get everything to pair my credit card wasn't pairing at first and i had plenty of money mm-hmm. in the car so it wasn't that but eventually it was like i think i think the card was reading and then the chat the chat email wasn't talking to the car and then the credit card wasn't reading and it was, then eventually <laughs> third or fourth try the card read 
Okay. Chatty Mo connects to the car. It worked. I got a decent amount. I got enough charge to get home in like 20 minutes. So okay. once it worked, it worked pretty well. But right, right, right. Yeah. But it actually brings up a question for you for you guys. Now that EVs are becoming a bigger part of the market and plug-in hybrids as well, how yeah. much does the availability of charging and, and, and like you mentioned with the leaf, does sort of charging mm-hmm. plays into plays into whether a car gets in that list or not? Not just the way the car drives and handles the convenience features and safety and all that. Yeah, I mean, we are we're at a place right now with the charging situation that it inevitably has to be considered. I mean, we do a lot of testing and put a lot of information on our website about charging for EVs and plugins in terms of, you know, the the miles per, you know, X amount of time plugged in you can expect if you're on the, you know, 350 versus a 150 or 50 kilowatt or something like that. But um, the fact of the matter is right now, yes, it, with the Tesla Model 3 or the Y or any Tesla, um, it's literally changing as we speak and, and in front of our eyes. But um, with access to that supercharger network, there's just no denying the fact that it's it's an easier EV to live with, right? Than mm-hmm. if you're having to rely on Electrify America or, you know, EV I've heard stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've experienced some myself. And so, yeah, the Tesla chargers just tend to be, um, you know, more reliable, certainly more prevalent. Uh, we know that. And mm, absolutely yeah. also integrated with the vehicle super well, right? That's another thing we right. tested and, and Tesla just it's that echo excuse me, Apple style ecosystem, right? That that everyone talks about and they've got that down. Um so yeah, so that's that definitely is factored into to why the model Y is on the, the list and why the, the Nissan Leaf is not, you know, outside of yes, the, the 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 Y is a quicker, better handling vehicle than the Leaf, there's no doubt. But um yeah, and then the interesting thing about plug-in hybrids is, um, and it less so about being on the list specifically, but just what's interesting about them is you don't always have to install a level two charger in your house, right? If you're buying an EV, I guess, technically speaking, you don't have to, but um, generally you want to install one of these quicker EV chargers in your house so that you can mm-hmm. charge it up overnight and get, you know, 20, 30 miles of, hour, of range per hour plugged in. Um, the batteries on these plugins are are generally small enough when you're talking, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles of range where you can actually just get away with using the included charger that plugs into your regular, you know, 120 volt outlet in your house. And so that's that's one thing we're testing with these is um, how long will it take to fill up the battery just using the included charger? Don't need to do anything else extra or modify your house or even live in a house, really, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you don't want to. So, yeah, and then of course, yeah. you, you have that gas engine to fall back on, even if it doesn't fully charge, right? Um, right. So, it's quite interesting. Yeah, when it comes to full battery electrics, the charging conversation is definitely interesting, especially for folks like me. I live in a high-rise in a small condo. Okay. And I don't have – our building's older. We don't have mm-hmm. – we don't have at the present. I've heard some chatter among, you know, the, the gossip of when you own a condo. <laughs> gossip among the HOA people. But uh-huh. there's been some talk about installing an EV charger or two. But right now we don't have that. We do have a, a charge point about a 10-minute walk away. That is I – mean, I'm in Chicago, so I'm in okay. – fairly urbanly dense, densely packed area, densely built. Mm-hmm. And uh, charge point, I don't want to jinx anything, but I'm not going to wood you might hear on the mic there, but I'm uh, <laughs> not going my wood table. But the charge point has worked fairly well so far when I've had to use okay. it to plug in, to charge uh, full, B, full BEVs. But I've definitely heard Electrify America story, horror stories. So, yeah, charging is – I'm glad that we brought that up because charging is something that you know, typically I wouldn't want an external factor to affect how a car is or isn't placed on a top 10 list. 
But right now, it does matter when you're shopping for a full BEV or even a plug-in hybrid that you plan on actually charging. And if, you, if you're buying a plug-in hybrid and don't actually plan on charging it, just playing and driving it like a regular series hybrid, okay, whatever. But if you're going to charge yeah. it frequently and you don't have char- home charging, if you don't have the ability to get home charging in your house or your apartment building, charging does matter. Right, it does. And yeah, with the plug-in hybrid, I mean, you, you, we find that you really do want to be charging them too as much as you possibly can. Well, yeah, you just, you'd the, save on fuel, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when you go to some of these Electrify America's station, I mean, in my own personal experience, um, you know, you'll show up to one and, you know, it's a 350 kilowatt charger. Maybe I'm showing up with a Hyundai Ionic 5 that should be able to charge at 235 kilowatt or something like that. And you get there and, um, you know, the the charging station screen says that the output of the charger is limited to due to bad weather. And you look around and it's like a sunny, cloudless, you know, summer day. <laughs> and you're stuck there wondering why the heck the charger is stuck at like, you know, 40 kilowatt. And now your charge stop is twice as long as you thought it would be or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just you never know what you're going to show up to. And I think, um, you know, that's outside of the car's control, like you mentioned. Right, right. So my final question for you, Alex, before we let you go is, all right, most auto outlets, auto journalism outlets do a top, or do a best cars or a top 10 or something or a top five every year. It's a little bit different for each outlet, but mm-hmm. most places do something. Mm-hmm. Very few do a worst cars. We actually do one. We don't, again, there's not a specific number. I think last year I asked my guys to pick just two or three mm-hmm. and a couple of guys pick only one, a couple of guys pick like five because people don't always follow the rules. That's fine. <laughs> but um, I was going to ask if there is a bottom 10. Do you guys do an official worst list? And if not, do you at least have in the back of your mind, like, man, if we did a bottom 10, these 10 cars would be Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Um, oh, it's a good question. I mean, we do put out like a, a best and worst new cars. It's not as, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess public or, or as impactful necessarily as, um, you know, what we're talking about with these top picks, um, mostly comes down to cars that are, are the least reliable. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, frankly, there are so many cars and I'm sure you might agree with this or experience it is like so many cars are really good these days at doing most. Oh things. yeah. Yeah. Like just from a product perspective, they're amazing. So I think when you're thinking about the worst cars, you know, it's not that this car is just horrible overall or this one can't do something. Um, for me, it comes down to something that a car does that that annoys me on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's something you just can't get away from. Um, and I know <laughs> I know you and Jake talked about this, so I don't want to be too unfair to this car, but the Alfa Romeo Tonale and actually the Dodge Hornet too mm-hmm. um, with their, their the chimes, the chimes on the inside of the car that... Um, you know, it, it actually yells at itself for the headlights being on. So if you pl- come into your garage or it's dark outside and you have the auto headlights on, when you open the door after shutting off the car, it starts beeping at you because the headlights are on, mm-hmm. even though they're, they're only on because the car turned them on itself. So just right, like right. silly stuff like that. Yeah. Um, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah. So just little things like that that you can't really get away from or bug you on a daily basis. Um you know, I think there are some some cars out there. You know, I'm really focused right now on electric vehicles and things like that. So there are some EVs that I think are a little, you know, half-baked in some ways um, or disappointing in some ways. I'm, I'm thinking about, 
you know, the Nissan Aria, for example, I won't say it's the worst car by any means, but, um, you know, it just, it isn't the quickest to charge. The range is pretty good, but, um, it, there's some other aspects of it that just aren't great. Like visibility, for example, mm-hmm. you, you look behind you and, um, you know, the wind, the rear window is really small and it's blocked by the camera that's protruding from the top of the hatchback. And then the window wiper is sticking up. And so just, you know, some of these aspects of, of, um, these cars that just aren't, aren't so great, I suppose. And part of that is because so many cars do things so, so well that these little things start to become obvious, I suppose. That, that makes a lot of sense for us. Maybe, we, yeah. Oh, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was about to ask what, what you think the worst <laughs> cars are, or what came up on your list. Well, before I do that, let me um, kind of walk you through how we did it. So sure. we, we didn't, we don't do, we don't have the, uh, Ability to test reliability the way Consumer Reports sure, we sure. just don't. We just don't. So reliability mm-hmm. didn't really matter as much to us okay. uh, as driving experience because we are a little bit more enthusiast-focused. Although mm-hmm. for me personally, a lot of it comes down to not how a car drives, but what a car does compared to its competition. So a lot of cars that I thought were bad were not necessarily bad in a vacuum. They were fine on their own, but sure. they didn't okay. measure up yes. to either their price mm-hmm. or the competition. Okay. So we have a long list, and the one common car among the several riders who contributed to the list was the, unsurprisingly, the BZ4X, which mm. I personally thought was not a terrible vehicle, but it's not nearly as good as anything it competes with, and that's that's part of the problem sure. I ran into. I was also yeah, disappointed. So, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I think we're we're looking at this in a very similar way, right? Like mm-hmm. these vehicles are all they're all good at being a car in most ways, right? But yeah, to, exactly to your point, like especially with these EVs, looking at them compared to what Tesla's doing or, or anybody else, right? I I totally see what you mean about the BZ4X. I mean, I I think it drives actually pretty well. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be unhappy owning one, but you can yeah. just do better for the money. Right, agreed. And then for me, my other two, and I, I won't go through our entire list. We don't have time for that, unfortunately. But my other two were the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE Trailhawk. That sounds like, oh my God, the Grand Cherokee. <laughs> I, I love cool. the Grand Cherokee. It's one of my favorite yeah. vehicles. And if I needed a five-seat cross uh, crossover SUV that could do a little bit of off-roading and had the money for one, I would totally buy mm-hmm. one. But I don't know if I'd buy the 4xE, partly because the the expectations are really high. And it also sure. requires you to get the Trailhawk trim, which is expensive. And then mm-hmm. the hybrid transitions, at least in the ones I drove, and I was on the launch, and I also drove one here at home, the transitions were not smooth between gas and hybrid, uh, as smooth as they should be. And that was bothersome since hybrid technology is not exactly new. So if, if that was a little bit, if that car was a little bit better baked or available at a lower mm-hmm. price point or mm-hmm. a lower trim level, I would, it would not be on the list. Um, yeah. It just was not, it just was not something I would buy. I'd rather buy a gas engine, Grand Cherokee. Yeah. And we, finally for me, oh, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, I was just going to comment on, on the, the Grand Cherokee. We did test one fully recently, um, the four by E and, yeah, totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, some of it seems to be, um, you know, with these plug-in hybrids, especially, there's so many different ways that you can execute them with where you put the motor and the battery and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So trying to take a longitudinal layout, rear-wheel drive with a drive shaft and implement this plug-in really hybrid. So, yeah, yeah, you know, they've got that motor in the torque converter position before the eight-speed. And then the bat- if you look under the car, the battery pack is actually like a saddle over the exhaust and the um, the drive shaft running through the car. It's just immensely complicated. I think the it has about a thousand pounds on the mm-hmm. uh, the regular v6 that we also tested so and totally agree that the transitions it's just not the smoothest and um it, you know i think 
for me with a plug-in hybrid, the easier it is to drive it in the EV mode without the engine coming on, right? Like that, that's a reason you probably brought or excuse me, purchased a, a plug-in hybrid is to take advantage of the EV driving, right? So it needs to accelerate well in EV mode, have enough range, um, and just you know, compared to some of the other plug-in hybrids that we tested, it's just not quite quite there. Right. And just to clarify before I give you my last uh, of the three worst cars that I picked last year, it's not that you need the, the Trailhawk trim. You know, if you want the powertrain, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. If you want the Trailhawk trim, you have to get a 4 by 8 Yeah, right. So exactly. that's, I said it backwards before, and that's my fault. I had my, my brain just tripped over itself. <laughs> uh, and then finally, it was actually a, 22, it was, it was a 2022 model, but it hasn't mm. changed at all. Okay. I picked the Audi Q4 e-tron, and again, it's actually Ooh, okay. on its own a good vehicle. Right, but the price tag it was yeah. like ooh, right? And I had no problems with the vehicle itself. Like if if you gave me one for free and you said you have to drive this for five years, I'd be very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the problem is, I wouldn't want to sign that payment every month for what they were asking. And again, like I said, you there are really truly very any very bad cars, and even the mm-hmm. true bad cars in the market, like the Mitsubishi Mirage. At least the Mirage is bad for a reason. It's bad because yeah. it's inexpensive. It's bad because it's inexpensive and it's basic and that's fine. Those yeah. who buy it know what they're getting. Yeah. You get an Audi Q4 e-tron, you're expecting a little more luxury for the price. And it no, really was it really didn't differentiate itself from the lesser vehicles it's based on. So that's what kind of bothered right. me with that car. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I one thing I do, I guess, like about the Q4. Well, there's two things that come to mind. One, from a controls like in usability perspective, it's mm-hmm. not totally out of this world right it does kind of feel like a regular audi so which is good they they do a, a good job um totally small detail i also really like the cup holders in the door they're huge um and like mm-hmm. pointed at you so you can just drop your bottle in there or whatever but um i have a yeah thinking about the price of you know we were, got ours pretty early on and sitting there looking at it after driving it and thinking about the price and kind of bothers me that you look at the rear wheels and you see a drum brake through the yeah. uh, the rear wheels. I mean, I know why they did it, and the the ID four is the same way. But mm-hmm. you know, to your point, it's just like, does this really feel like I spent, uh, you know, sixty thousand dollars or or whatever it is? Um, yeah, no, I I totally get that one. Yeah, yeah, and for me, I thought the interior material interior materials just weren't up to snuff for that price. For yeah, right, for even ten thousand less had been okay, but for sixty five or sixty yeah. sixty four and six almost sixty five for what but my test vehicle was. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the one the one we bought for testing was somewhere in that ballpark too. Yeah, yeah. So that's again, I think you know, for me, there's very few really truly bad cars, as you said, and as and as I've said as well. I think what it really comes down to is that most of the cars that are quote unquote bad just either are overpriced, mm-hmm. uh, at least at MSRP, and we all know MSRP is a suggested retail price. People can make yeah. a shakedown, so yeah, that is a caveat that needs to be factored in. But also, there's just a lot of cars either just don't match their mission, or they don't match their competition. And I think that's that to me is a, when when I'm reviewing cars, it's one thing I think of a lot too. Is like this car on its own, pretty good, but is it good enough for the money that they're asking for a sticker price? And is it good enough that I would buy this over its stark competitors? That's that's something that I, I factor in a lot as well. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, especially in some of these segments where you just have so many options, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's like uh, to your point again about the the Q4. Why why would I put sixty five thousand dollars down on this car when I can go get a Tesla or even one of the Hyundai Kia Genesis models that mm-hmm. or a is, Mustang Mach E? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's just it doesn't quite. I don't know. You gotta you gotta 
you got to have a stronger showing than that, I think, in this day and age. I agree. Well, Alex, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank I- you for having me on. This has been been fun. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love have transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. With eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber and not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only and exclusions apply. So thanks again to listening to the Truth About Cars podcast. Today, our guests were BJ Burtwell, the founder and CEO of Electrify Expo, and Alex Nizik, the manager of automotive testing and insights from Consumer Reports. BJ was on to discuss electrification in the automotive industry, while Alex went over Consumer Reports' top 10 for 2024. That's it. That's all for today. I, I am Tim Healy, the managing editor for The Truth About Cars. That's ttac.com, ttac.com, or thetruthaboutcars.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.